Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Macro View, episode 4.5. I decided to host a little pop-up episode tonight. Was going to do it last night, but got uh, slammed with a couple of things at work. So uh, we're following up tonight, and basically the theme of this episode is why are Americans, or why do American, why do Americans have a such strong distrust for uh, financial professionals, particularly financial advisors? This is a subject that's somewhat near to uh, my heart, specifically, you know, being in the financial um, industry, and and you know, it was something that I I planned on you know putting off until a little bit later. And we can dedicate a whole show, if not more to that than that to this. You'll probably do even you know a whole uh, series of interviews with different people who have had experiences uh, dealing with the uh, financial regulatory environment. But what this article really was about was was consumer sentiment and and people who are actually you know pursuing financial advice or thinking about trying to get financial advice and their distrust and fear of financial advisors. And the article starts out since the 1980s, Hollywood has made millions of dollars creating a slew of movies depicting the greed and crime of financial services industry. And by the way, I have a, a link to uh, this article on the slide show. You'll have to kind of just like, you know, check it out and read it and copy it. Um, but when we get our uh, official podcast website up, I will, you know, have more room to, uh, you know, write descriptions of the art of, of the episode along with it. Uh, and within there, I will, uh, you know, articles I'm discussing or whatnot, I'll post it so that people who are listening can also have a chance to read it for themselves. But uh, back to this article, well, this by Julie Fletcher is in the uh, Denver Post. And I saw it, uh, I believe that I saw it on, on, either Twitter or LinkedIn. I think it was actually on LinkedIn. Um, since, since the 1980s, Hollywood has made millions of dollars creating a slew of movies depicting greed and crime of the financial services industry. Which is your favorite? Wall Street? The Greed is Good movie from 1987. Boiler Room? The Wolf of Wall Street? The Big Short? You know, two more recent ones. Uh, based on, you know, all these movies based on the media portrayals of financial professional it is no wonder that Americans are scared to death to trust anybody with their hard-earned money. And she's right. I mean, Hollywood and the mainstream media treats uh, and depicts the financial profession as the most inherently evil profession uh, that's out there. And I'll just say that that's absolutely not true. You know, I go to conferences and go to events and as part of a, a local charter association, I, you know, help plan events. And I know a lot of the people here in L.A., you know, where Hollywood is based, um, you know, a lot of people in the financial profession and they are very good people. I've never even come across a conversation uh, with somebody who you would get, you know, even the slightest bit of, you know, bad intent from. Uh, people are generally good and that goes for almost every profession. And it's, it's definitely true in the financial profession as well. And, and some of the statistics back that up um, and actually to divert from this, this article and we'll come back to it and, and finish reading it. But, you know, just to go through some of this on slide four in tonight's show, um, I just kind of somewhat recreated and, and uh, consolidated some of the <clears throat> numbers from the pie chart that we had on episode 3.5 the other night. Um, 
and you can find that on on our website. This, this is just kind of a recreation of a pie chart that was on on I believe the slide four on that uh, episode as well. And this is uh, regulatory compliance costs uh, to businesses in billions by um, you know, sort of itemized by different departments or uh, unified. Uh, groups of regulators, so like in the case of financial, that would include the CFTC, NFA, uh, you know, it would include the SEC and FINRA uh, and other, uh, you know, government funded and state, uh, you know, state state securities organizations and, and investment regulators and financial regulators. It would include bank, bank regulators and all of that. So, uh, but financial regulations cost businesses about $80 billion. And it, as you can see, um, combination, I, I, I don't actually have the numbers on here, but I have the link to the article, which does discuss the, the numbers. It's the first article Gibson done. Um, that's where the quotes, uh, some of them are quotes, some of our paraphrases, uh, on the first slide come from. And, uh, it, it talks a little bit about, you know, what the, the amount of, uh, fines levied. It's similar to what FINRA has done. It's about 190 million or so. Um, but basically, there are uh, yeah, there's about 62 trillion dollars managed by U.S. SEC registered uh, investment advisors. It equates to maybe about 600 billion in fee revenue um, to those advisors. So 191 million dollars, as we, we have in, in slide three here, you can see um, you know 191 million dollars in fines recovered last year. So, out of 600 billion in fee revenue, it's about 0.03% of the total financial industry fee revenue. It doesn't really have that big of effect. Um, it's very small, and the number of cases are very, very small. 0.12% of brokers actually commit fraud over a 30 year period. If you're investing over a long term, over a 30 year period, it's 3.66% over that period. If you compound that every year, and, you know, that's probably not even the best way to get an exact prediction of what that'll look like, but it's still very small over a very, very long period of time. There's not a lot of brokers that are running rampant committing fraud. <clears throat> and uh, the actual regulatory costs are about 4% of the total regulatory budget. Okay. And $80 billion is more than 10% of the total fee revenue. 10% of the total fee revenue, the actual fines are only 0.03% of the financial industry fee revenue or investment advisory fee revenue. $80 billion in financial industry regulatory costs. And a lot of that, you know, go towards, um, you know, financial advisors and investment advisors. 26% of 755 cases were that the SEC enforced in 20 advisors 196 of them there's roughly 49,000 investment advisor representatives so it's only about 0.4 percent of investment advisor rep, uh, representatives that even faced action yet you have 80 billion dollars in costs to deal with that uh, 107 of the of those 755 cases were for delinquent filings of, of corporations had nothing to do with advisors one in four enforcement actions that the SEC brought about were, are what's considered non-scienter, uh, non-fraud violations. And scienter is a, a, a legal term that refers to intent or knowledge of wrongdoing. So basically, it's the, you know, the SEC essentially determining 
that the way that somebody does business or runs their business is not um, is not best practices in their eyes, and they find them or bring some sort of action against them. But there's actually no fraud committed, and the person um, who is having the enforcement action brought against them had no knowledge that they were doing anything wrong. So we talked in in uh, you know the first episode about you know talking about ideas um, and and situations where laws exist and are prosecuted and actually damage people's lives um, that are not based on, uh, you know, the, the, the Latin phrase malum in se or laws that in and of themselves are wrong. When you're actually doing something, stealing, defrauding people, deceiving people, uh, if you're, you're physically hurting people or if you're damaging somebody's property, you know, all of those things we can all agree are wrong. Um, whether somebody you know, has two backups or one backup, you know, you could debate that. Uh, you could debate probably pros and, and cons of both sides and benefits and, and uh, detriments to consumers of both sides. And it's up to business owners and then consumers that choose to go towards that business to make those decisions. It's not up to regulators. But regulators regularly make decisions that are everyday business course decisions. Interesting because I heard <laughs> – I heard – and it's just it's, it's it's almost comedic because you know gov- government does this to business all the time, but then they want to pass when it's it's been turned around and done to them or at least perceived to be done to them. And the new head of the DNC, I heard him say, we oft- her say, we often criminalize behavior that is normal. And she's talking about Clinton Foundation corruption allegations, but I just find that comedic because it's true. We do that in the, in, in the private sector on a daily routine basis. It's constant. It's one of the biggest issues facing us today is that people going about their business, their everyday business, the way that they've always done it, face cr- criminal charges, um, you know, regulatory charges that are prosecuted, not in the everyday court and kangaroo courts or administrative, what's called administrative proceeding. And, you know, these, these actions significantly affect people's lives people get banned from careers uh where they don't have due process people get fined amounts that put their their business at risk uh or force them to have to charge employees more and then the the worst side effect is all is the of all is the unseen the lack of innovation and the stagnant you know the stagnant investment opportunities and world of investment opportunities that non-wealthy investors are able to access because of accredited investor laws and the fact that you get to be exempt from a whole slew of regulations if you only offer your products to, reg- to accredited investors. And if you're exempt from that whole slew of regulations, your regulatory costs go from being you know, a million bucks, two million bucks to start up, down to being about 50,000 bucks in the capital that you start with. So it, you know, it's, it, it's something that, that is a very issue when you have a world where there's almost there's a lot of financial innovation going on for the wealthiest if you have five million bucks that you're going to put in a separate account you can you can find some really unique investment strategies that help you to not only protect your wealth but capture a significant upside if the market hits certain benchmarks and maybe in very flat years or up or down small small bits uh you you know you kind of break even if the market's down big you're protected and if the market's up big you know you get some upside and there are strategies that exist like that unfortunately no bank is going to create that product and try to syndicate it because the regulatory costs to syndicate are way too high. By syndicate, I mean go out and offer it to the general public. 
what they're typically going to do is they're going to do that only if and when they have a, 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 a request in order you know, to do that for a, either a wealthy client or a large institutional client. At FINRA, FINRA, you know, so about 0.4% every year, about 0.4% of investment advisor representatives face action. That's 0.4%. That means four-tenths of 1%. Okay, that means that if you had 1,000 people, four people would, would you know, four, out of a, a pool of 1,000, about four people did something wrong or according to the SEC did something wrong. And, you know, one out of four of those really didn't do anything wrong. You know, it's just they're they're they weren't doing it the way the SEC wanted them to do it. Um and you know, speaking of that that 0.4% though, that's a little over a quarter of all of the SEC's enforcement actions, which you know, their their primary enforcement is against corporate fraud and and, and corporate filings and and but then they also do the uh, investment advisor registration and regulation and, and routine audits and things like that. FINRA, who's another financial industry regulator, uh, the, the, you know, pro, I think that they're probably the largest because they have 641,000 brokers, um, nearly 4,000 securities firms. There's more investment advisory firms. I think there's about 10,000 investment advisory firms, only about 49,000 investment advisor representatives. So there's a lot more brokers than there are security firms, and um, there are a lot more, uh, or there's a lot more brokers than there are investment advisor representatives. But there's a lot more investment advisory firms or registered investment advisors than there are um, broker dealers, and broker dealers have a larger average staff. Uh, basically, is what it, what it boils down to. Uh, FINRA referred a little over 800 fraud and insider trading cases and levied about $191.7 million in fines and restitutions, conducted about 4,100 exams in 2015. And these numbers are very similar to what the SEC did, a little bit higher. Um, it processed 42 billion market events every day, which is an interesting and, and maybe vital role to, to at least capture that data and make sure that there's no uh, cybersecurity issues going on in the background. Um, 3,600 employees, that's the entire size of this industry that regulates 641,000 brokers. They only have 3,600 employees that, that are dedicated to market integrity and investor protection, or, or so, so they speak. And, and that's at the expense of competition. Let's be clear about that. So they, they protect investors at the expense of innovation and competition, but that's their mandate. And... Um, the uh, the other thing they have on on here is that in 2015, investors used broker check to conduct 71 million reviews of brokers and firm records. So what is the you know it may seem some of these numbers may seem like okay yeah you know that's a lot that's that's you know they do a good job. Well, 800 fraud cases out of 641,000 FINRA regulated brokers that's 0.12 percent of brokers that committed fraud. It's a very very small amount. 191.7 million in fines. We talked about kind of the fee revenue. Um, in brokerage cases, it's 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 more uh, commission revenue, but it's probably something similar. 0.03 percent of the total financial industry, you know, fee revenue. And then when you look at the actual regulatory cost that is imposed on businesses, 80 billion dollars, which is four percent of the total regulatory budget, and is more than 10 percent of the uh, total fee uh, revenue that financial professionals receive. Let's ponder that for a second. 
more than 10% goes to regulatory compliance. I mean, it's basically just an additional debt. You know, to have a, uh, a, a, a group that the government has assigned to tell you in a lot of ways how you should run your business. That's, that's what they do, you know, for, on behalf of financial advisors and uh, registered investment advisors. So the other thing that I mentioned earlier was that they, over three quarters, I can only hit you, over three quarters of uh, SEC cases were filed in what's called administrative proceedings, which basically means that they're con- conducted in front of a judge. You don't have due process. You're, you're not entitled to attorney if you can't pay for it. They do have a right to seek jail time. Typically, it's just fines and settlement, um, but it's done in front of an attorney that is uh, an employee of the SEC. You know, they, their payroll is, is directly from the SEC. It's not, you know, a, uh, a local uh, court. It's not a state court. It's not a federal court. It is not a uh, taxpayer. It, it, I mean, technically, it is taxpayer-funded employee, but it, it is not a common interest employee. There's a clear interest to side and to defer to the expertise of the SEC, who is the, the organization that pays their uh, their bills. So uh, there's just a little bit of entanglement and, 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 and you know, one would venture to say uh, conflict of interest in, in just kind of the way that that entire system is run. So we've covered about uh, 20 minutes of, of what will probably end up being about a 30-minute episode. It's not going to be that long. I uh, mentioned that it's going to be some, somewhat of a shorter you know, kind of pop, pop-up episode. But I want to talk now a little bit about philosophically what this means um, you know, for America. Because, you know, the financial industry is extremely important and people investing is extreme, or, or extremely important. And especially in a time when you cannot go and get four, five, six percent in a FDIC insured CD like you used to, like our grandparents did. And in some cases, our parents. And in some cases, possibly some of, some of the listeners here. You, CDs don't offer those kinds of rates anymore. Interest rates are at all time lows. And, uh, you know, one-year CDs, you're, you'll be lucky to get 25 basis points or 0.25 interest. So you got to take risk. And, you know, in order to take risk, you've got to really understand what it is that you're buying. Because you're not just buying a company. You're buying the company's stock. And the, the stock trades based on the supply and demand of, the, of, of that stock. And what kind of drives the supply and demand of that stock? A number of different fundamentals based on kind of what stage it's in and what size it is and what sector it's in. And, you know, some people get really granular and, and other people take other approaches. And then there's whole levels of digging into some qualitative factors beyond just the fundamentals of a company and the, the earnings uh, and the earnings growth and what, you know, what you're paying, what price you're paying for every dollar of earnings that a company is, is, is producing um, you know, on a per share basis. When you're, when you're a stockholder, that's kind of the ultimate end goal is for that company to earn or to profit. And the better price you pay for do- per dollar of earnings, and then another good good uh, uh, measure is the peg ratio, which is price to earnings growth, and it gives you a good measure of of uh, the price that you're paying for not just the dollar of earnings, but the dollar of earnings um, uh, the, by by the growth rate basically. 
inclusive of the growth rate. So um, the peg ratio is is a a really good measure for valuation as well. So you kind of get a good idea of whether you're paying a high value or a low value because it could be a great company, but it might be trading at a high value because a lot of other people think it's a great company and put a bunch of money into it. And uh, maybe the value doesn't necessarily justify the price. So you got to pay attention to that when it comes to investing and uh, from a risk taker's perspective, you need a, you might need a financial professional. If you're not somebody who has the time in your day to be able to sit down and, you know, go through a, a whole list of companies, you know, what you should either do is you put it in index funds and you have a good diversified portfolio, but even to do that, you should really find a financial professional. And, you know, in this article that I referenced at the beginning of the show, and I read a little bit from, um, one of the things that, that the, uh, the, the financial advisor, the uh, lady who wrote this article, uh, goes on to say um, is that uh, people sometimes feel the same anxiety around going to a financial professional that they do about going to a doctor, but it's different. And uh, you, you can put off going to a financial professional if you have a, you know, quote unquote, illness when it comes to your finances you can't do that if you with a doctor. You're not going to do that with your life unless you're a Christian scientist. But you're just not going to. Um, you're not. You're not going to not go to the hospital if you have a very bad illness that isn't going away. Or you're not going to not go to the doctor and at least see what's wrong. From a financial perspective, people who have very uh, chaotic personal finances and have absolutely no plan in place and have no goal for retirement other than hoping that something works out kind of that'd be probably what they say out well i'm hoping that something works out and or I'll, I'll start working on it later i'll make a lot more money later uh people who who don't have that plan in place they can put that off their life might be a lot crappier than they would have liked it for, for it to be later on in life if they don't plan if they don't invest if they don't put money away um but you're they're not going to physically die and their safety nets, their social security, and you know, if, if they're a hard worker, they paid into it and they make good money. You know, maybe their social security gives them a little bit, and they have a little IRA or they have a four hundred one k, and they just it's on autopilot. Don't worry about it. But for people who either don't have those kind of autopilot options, and even if you do, you should kind of know a little bit more or talk to an independent advisor who isn't your company's assigned four hundred one k advisor. And talk to them about what's going on in your portfolio and, and if it's what's right for you based on your goals and based on your sentiments and how aggressive of an investor you are and your, your uh, outlook on, on the world and a number of different things. But you need that financial professional if you don't have the time of day to scour companies and to find good valuable companies or to scour funds and find good, good funds uh, that, are, that are thematically aimed towards a sector or a style uh, or a size class that is going to do well and is uh, geared in the right way or, or, or is, you know, uses the right type of weighting scheme or use whatever the case may be in order to, uh, you know, kind of outperform a benchmark or, or to attempt to outperform a benchmark. And then beyond that, you have people that cry, you know, you don't have a lot, you have a lot of people that don't go and just won't go and get the advice, don't plan at all. And they can't just put their money in the bank and earn four, five, six percent, and and over time it grows and, and they're able to retire on it. You can't do that anymore. Interest rates are too low, 
So the, the end result is going to be you're going to have a lot of people who are financially illiterate. You're going to have a lot of people who haven't planned, who haven't saved, who are going to cry out and say, Wall Street took my money. That's what you're going to have. That's going to be the cultural effect. And you're already starting to see it happen. What happens when that happens? Well, you have a whole generation who, uh, you know, the smartest kids coming out of college don't want to go to Wall Street anymore. They'd rather go to Silicon Valley and be praised and start a uh, gaming app that offers absolutely no productivity and, and go and get money from the Wall Street people, you know, two, three years down the line. And why not? Why not? I mean, look at the opportunity cost. And why are you going to walk around in, in you know, an industry, if you're a smart person that could do something else, why are you going to walk around in an industry, being a professional in an industry that's demonized by everybody? It just doesn't make sense. Most people won't do it. Some people who really do love the profession, who aren't in it for the money, yeah, they're going to still do it. They're going to put up with it, but eventually they're not. And as soon as they make their money, they're going to get out. And you're not going to get innovation. You're not going to get new products. You're not going to get the best managers. The best managers will make their money and they'll walk away because they'll stop dealing with it. You know, it's like they want to create this world where you basically already have to be wealthy and have proven yourself over the course of six, seven years working for someone else, you know, or 20 years working for someone else and already be wealthy and have two, three, four million dollars just to overcome startup costs in order to do this. Well, if you're that wealthy, why the hell would you do it? Why would you put up with all of that? Why would you just sink two million bucks into it? And if you're that wealthy, it's easier for you because you go and raise a little, you know, some money from other people and you hire a staff. You know, you're not doing it all on your own. You're not dealing with it all on your own. You outsource compliance. So you have somebody that you, that you uh, an attorney that you pay that comes in and that's, the, you know, their sole job is to deal with that. You don't have to juggle it as, as part of your everyday career, if you're, you know, life, if you're already wealthy. So what it does is it effectively makes it a, a stagnant status quo industry on top of the fact that it takes two or three years to create a new financial product. If you want to roll out a new retail investment product, two to three years is probably being optimistic. It could take a fucking decade to get a product through the SEC. You know, so, and, and from a banking product, forget about it. Forget about it nowadays. You know, you want to securitize some sort of, you know, private loans. Oh my goodness. Forget about it. It's not going to happen after 08. You don't have any innovation. And what happens? Entrepreneurs can't get loans. The big, huge companies that have huge revenue bases, they can get loans and swallow up the small companies that are struggling to survive and overcome the regulations. The big get bigger. They get monopoly or oligopoly power. They, they're able to set prices to price out consumers that they don't want to have to deal with. And there's no innovation. There's no competition. And the consumer, at the end of the day, everybody who uses those services gets hurt. Everybody. Everybody. Including the people at the top. They might have monopoly power, and they might like the fact that they don't have competition, they're safe, but everybody gets hurt. And eventually, eventually, even despite government, a massively disruptive innovation will come out that will make the rules and regulations that exist obsolete. It will be so overwhelming to consumers that when regulators try to regulate it, there will be a consumer revolt, and they won't be able to. And, 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 you know, I, I don't want that to have to, ha- have to happen. I'd rather it be a nice gradual path towards progress where you have innovations that, that exist and either succeed or fail based on their merits in the marketplace. And you don't have government propping up huge corporations that have built-in grandfather clauses and, and you know, in, into the regulatory environment 
that, uh, you know, they get advantages because of the, it takes so long and their competitors have to disclose everything when they try to enter the market. They get competitive advantages. They can launch a new product in 30 days or 60 days. Someone that's just coming into the market, it takes them a year. But at the beginning of that year, they have to disclose their entire strategy. So the whole world knows what they're going to be doing a year from now. You know, I mean, so it's, it's, it's an industry that's demonized, that's overregulated. And, and it, 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 I, I would venture to say that those numbers that we just looked at on the actual enforcement and the number of fraud cases that actually exist, I would venture to say that's probably better than most other industries. Financial advisors are generally good people. They're good people that happen to be in, in a business that's a very high-stress business that people put a lot of trust in them. And a lot of times it's really, really hard for them uh, it's, it's really, really hard for them to, to get a fair shake. People just generally distrust them because they're going to be dealing with their money. I understand it's a touchy subject, but you know what? These people are, they're, they're the ultimate professionals. And multiple, there's, there's all sorts of continuing education associations that have their own ethics training and standards. And then, you know, people just are generally good. I usually say one to 3% of people are bad in any group. And in financial advisors, it's less than that. It ranges from 0.12% to about 0.4%. It's a very small fraction. And then we spend $80 billion trying to catch that very small fraction, $80 billion of other businesses' money and regulatory costs. And we only levy about, you know, in total combined, about $400 million, $400 million, not billion, $400 million, a very small percentage of the overall revenues. It's totally an effect. Yeah, I could handle it and could do it a lot easier. And then exchanges, you know, you could have different levels of exchanges and the SEC could just focus on corporate offerings and exchanges. Tonight, that was our show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. There's a little bit of a rant going off on, on why Americans have a distrust in financial advisors and how it needs to end. A lot of the lies that are perpetuated by mainstream media and Hollywood, they're just flat out lies. They're flat out lies. Financial advisors are good people. They're not bad people. You know, you got to start to trust them a little bit more if you don't want to be uh, poor and destitute in your retirement and you want to have legitimate advice towards how to invest and how to make yourself, uh, you know, a little bit more wealthy later on, no matter what it is that you choose as your career. Thank you guys for tuning in tonight. Um, if, uh, if, if, if you're catching this live on Blog Talk Radio, I appreciate it. Uh, if, if you're not catching it live, um, you know, share it with your friends. You can find us on Podbean, on Google Play Music, uh, under the podcast section, and on Blog Talk Radio on our archive page. Uh, check out our other episodes. We've done a this is our, our, our officially our uh, sixth episode. We've got episode five coming out, which is you know the episodes are planned episodes. That I do occasionally a pop up episode that I label with a point five. But um, check out our other episodes. Give us some feedback as we get a bigger audience base. Um, you know, and as we're able to start making a little bit of money off this thing, I'm going to start upgrading the quality and upgrading, um, you know, maybe even go to video. I'd like to get enough listeners to really have some great interviews, um, you know, and eventually maybe even host some really good solid debates of, uh, you know, whether it's something along the lines of, uh, you know, just a general capitalism versus socialism or capitalism versus corporatism type of deal. Um, but, you know, get two people who have differing opinions on either something specific or broad regarding economics and the different approach it 
and maybe even drill down to specific policies. I'd love to eventually have, you know, multiple guests on and, and have debates like that. So, you know, all that can happen if you guys share this with your friends and you become active followers and you get feedback and, and you help create a, uh, you know, what, what I like to call the logic movement, uh, help grow this logic movement that we're trying to start here that's based on actual facts, that's not based on sentiments and feelings, that's not based on what Hollywood likes to portray, but it's based on the real life everyday facts of what's going on in the private markets that's making everybody's life better. Yeah, there's occasional scandal. Yeah, there's occasional bad people. But for the vast majority of Americans, their lives are increasingly getting better because of what people do in the private sector. And it could be happening even faster. And their lives could be way more affordable and more efficient if government will get out the way a little bit more. And that's what we want to bring to light. The way that we bring it to light is we show the raw numbers. We have philosophical discussions and we discuss logic. And if you, you disagree with us, I'd like, love to have you call in and hear, hear your, uh, your side of the argument. And um, we could talk it out. So, again, this is Andrew Smith. Uh, this was episode 4.5. It's officially our sixth episode, though, uh, of the Macro View. Tune in next week, uh, or actually this weekend on Saturday, we'll be discussing the education system. Thanks for tuning in tonight. I uh, hope everybody has a uh, great rest of your week. And I will uh, see a bunch of you all on uh, Saturday, or at least hear from a bunch of you all on Saturday. Take care, everybody.